0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome,
1: everybody, to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar at Stanford University. I'm Ravi Balani, a lecturer in the Management, Science, and Engineering Department at Stanford. And this series, as you know, is brought to you by BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students and STVP the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering at Stanford. Um, today, in a slight departure from our normal protocol, we have a, I'm going to be introducing the speaker who's going to be introducing our VIP speaker, who's going to be speaking on scaling today. And we took the opportunity of Claire's visit to Stanford to bring in one of our department's leading scholars on scaling, Bob Sutton. I think you guys all know Bob, but Bob is a professor in the Management Science and De- Engineering Department at Stanford and the author of seven books, including Scaling Up Excellence. Bob?
2: All right. My name's Bob Sutton, as advertised. And I'm here to introduce Claire Hughes-Johnson. She's the author of Scaling People, Tactics for Management and Company Building. Uh, Claire has a remarkable background. She's on multiple boards. She was at Google for 10 years. I think most pertinent to this book, which I spend much of the week reading, it's just remarkable, is she was COO at Stripe. At Stripe, as it grew from 200 to 7,000 people. That is serious scaling, man. And uh, I I guess I've written uh, now two books related to scaling. Uh, If you're going to buy one, don't buy mine. Buy this one. And I'm not kidding. This book has so many details. She knows how to do it. She's not just an academic who talks about it. Um, And in addition, the thing that amazed me, when I saw how dense it was, I said, oh, it's going to be boring to read. But she can write. It's like amazing. So (laughs) it's detailed. It's useful. And it's got heart. So I think that's enough. So let's hear the story, Claire. Anyway, a round of applause for Claire.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, wow. uh, thank you, Ravi and Bob. And uh, that is an endorsement from a fellow author. Wow. Uh, I am the child of an English teacher. So if he were alive, he'd be very happy to hear uh, that I can still write. (laughs) Uh, Because it's true, once you're writing corporate emails, you sort of lose some of those skills. Uh, But I'm just thrilled to be here as allegedly a thought leader on entrepreneurship. Um, I think mostly when you hear from entrepreneurs, you're talking to people who've taken an idea from zero to one, which is, you know, the famous. And I am very proudly more of a one to two person, or maybe one to three. Uh, and when I was talking to the team here about uh, coming and speaking, I heard very emphatically that it would be great to have more operators come and talk about that work because, in fact, it is one thing to get an idea off the ground, a product, get to product market fit. It is another thing to then scale what becomes, hopefully for you, some kind of organization, a company. And those skill sets are actually related but quite different. And what you'll find with operators uh, is most of us are more comfortable behind the scenes. And I am one of them, so this is unusual for me. Uh, And in fact, I I did write a book, which seems very front of the house type thing to do, but it was not my idea. Uh, It was John and Patrick Collison, who are the co-founders of Stripe, uh, who encouraged me slash made me Uh, Write it because they didn't think there was a tactical, practical, specific and detailed enough how do you do the thing uh, book about scaling, Uh, company building, but also management tactics that you really need. I don't care what size your company you're at. I hope the management and leadership uh, information is applicable actually quite widely. I don't know why they thought I was the best person. I am not an academic and I want to start with that. So really what the book is about is my experience. So what I'm going to do today is talk a little bit about some of the frames in the book, the key frameworks. I'm going to show a few visuals from the book, just trying to bring them alive. Uh, But the challenge here is that a lot of the book is about the detail. So I'll try to end early and be able to answer some questions. But I just want to caveat with the book has some some frameworks, some of which I I definitely stole with pride, and some of which I conceived of myself. Um, But it's really more about the examples of how you see that thing happen in practice. Um, so let me let me just start through what the book has in it because then I'm going to zoom in on a couple sections. So the first chapter of the book is about my personal operating principles, which I'm going to get to because they lay a foundation for what I think is my leadership style. But I also encourage all of you, anyone who's attempting to lead anything, to come up with your own personal version of your authentic operating principles. I think mine are fairly transferable, which is why I spent a lot of time sharing them in the book, but they also come from a couple decades of of practice and learning. I then go into operating structures, which I am also going to talk about today, because a lot of scaled systems is about building replicable structures that can be sort of started at the top I mean, OKRs at Google are a great example of this. Everybody from the CEO and the executive team does OKRs down through any individual in the company. And that's a replicable organizing structure. And I'm going to talk about some of the ones that I think are really important to create stable foundations for what ultimately can be quite chaotic environments, <clears throat> especially if you're in a high-growth environment. Uh, I then Spend a lot of time talking about hiring and talent, which I'm not going to go into, but if you're interested, uh, that's the longest chapter of the book, because uh, if you believe that uh, talent is everything, which it often is in the kinds of companies that people certainly in this area of the world found, then people are everything. And getting the right people into the room and at the table is uh, actually a lot of scaled processes to do that at the level of volume that we're talking about. I then talk about intentional team development. Uh, there's one thing to be a manager and another thing to be a leader, and it's not yet another thing to combine those two and build a high-functioning team that can contribute at a level that is above the sum of its parts. Uh, and then the next chapter is about one-to-one performance, you know, being a manager, being a coach, uh, doing performance management if you have to, handling sort of crises that happen with people and how to find your skill set as a manager. And honestly, a lot of management is very teachable. But a lot of it also happens behind closed doors. So I try to demystify all that stuff that's going on in one-on-ones and performance reviews and walk through what it might look like and help people sort of get a pattern match enough that they can repeat these things. And then the final chapter is called You. And it is about you. And it's about your own energy. Um, I loved Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things because it was like really being inside what he called the struggle. Uh, Being that entrepreneur, you have so much burden on you, so much responsibility. It feels like everything is falling apart, and yet you must persevere. And I think that I I have my own advice I offer on how I do that, how I manage my own energy, how I compartmentalize when I need to. There's a little sidebar in there about working with founders. Uh, because I have worked with a lot of founders and I continue. I I now uh, invest and advise a lot of young companies and uh, that's a little sidebar in the U chapter, but it's mostly about your own career and how I manage mine. So that's the overview. That's like the cliff notes of what you would find in this fairly long book, which is not meant to be read cover to cover. It's more of a reference guide. Look in the table of contents, find what interests you and go to that. So, um, so let's talk about, before we get into the operating structures, I wanted to start with my principles, as I warned you. So the first one um, is the most important one, which is build self-awareness to build mutual awareness. Uh, a lot of people think that leadership and management is obviously about your team, about your organization, about the work they do. And I would actually argue, no, it has to start with you. Uh, understanding your own work styles, your strengths, Uh, your areas for development, really your blind spots. I think we all actually, most of our strengths are like breathing and then our blind spots are blind spots because you don't know. And so how do you find them out? Obviously asking for feedback, but I'll show you all a visual in a few minutes of, of how I sort of start to map people around me and invite them to map themselves so we can start to relate to one another in our default preferences. Because as humans, like we're animals, we all have default preferences, but yours is different than mine. And the key, the key for you is to figure out, okay, where, where do I fall on this? And how do I surround myself with a complementary portfolio of a team who can really push me in the direction that I don't naturally go? Uh, so that's the first one. The next one is to say the thing you think you cannot say. Um, I think if there was anything that I've learned in my career um, as a leader, yes, but more as a manager is that we all have a theory in our head and sometimes a thing that, you know, you're all having thinking something in in, in one part of your brain right now that you're not going to blurt out loud. But if you really thought constructively, how do I get that thing that I'm wondering? uh, Maybe it's a piece of feedback. Maybe it's a question about, like, is this the right meeting to be having? Like, why are we talking about this right now? You know, those are, I've come to actually value the many engineers that I've worked with because they are more liable to put that thing on the table. And I enjoy that now. I used to kind of make me defensive. And now today, I'm like, how do you get this stuff on the table? How do you have open and transparent communication about what's really, what you're really thinking, what you're really, your real idea? Uh, and I think the best way to do it is often with a question. Uh, but I'm not gonna spend time on that as much today unless we have questions about it. The next one I already mentioned, which is distinguishing between management and leadership. I think the best of us, there you will interview, and I have some leaders, often founders, who will say to you, I'm not a good manager. Uh, Reed Hoffman said to me that one guy once gave him the feedback, I wouldn't hire you to manage McDonald's. Uh, I just hire great managers around me. And I do think that is one philosophy, which is recognize you're not a great manager, you're the leader, hire great managers around you, fine. I don't subscribe to that philosophy. I believe that we all grow up with a little more strength in one path or the other, I'm a more natural manager than I am a leader. I think that's true of a lot of operators. Or you grow up as a leader. A lot of founders are—I'm generalizing—and I want you to all realize this is a big generalization and not meant to stereotype people. But grow up as more of a leader. And uh, and if you think about leadership, that's vision. That's the idea. That's setting the bar extremely high. It's about having ambition. And yeah, sometimes reality distortion. Like they're describing a thing where you're like, how are we? I'm the operator. I'm like, how are we ever going to get there? Right. And the manager is is more knowable. It's like I got to get from point A to point B. I got to make a plan. I got to set goals. I got to measure. I got to organize the talent, give them assignments and get the thing done. Right. You grow up in one or the other. And then you hit a point in your career where you either learn the other skill and how to integrate it or you don't. And I think the people who don't learn enough of the other skill cap out in their ability, one, to develop others and to have a high-performing team, but really, I think, ultimately, in their own learning process. The best of me is the me that can lead and set the vision and really push people. Leadership is turning up the heat, uh, but also manage and be empathetic and be on the ground and be setting the right metrics. Right, those That integrated person of me is my best self. Uh, and I, I encourage all of you to think about how you integrate. Learn those two skills and, and start to integrate them. And the final one is come back to the operating system. Um, So let's just do a quick uh, deep dive into the self-awareness one, and then we'll go to the operating system, because I am going to talk about how you come back to it, which is first you have to create it. Um, So this is a figure. And I want to acknowledge the amazing Stripe design team. And I realize uh, it may or may not be as readable, uh, depending on what format you're viewing this. But it is um, my cheat sheet. (laughs) having taken a lot of different work style and personality assessments. So MBTI, which is Myers-Briggs, DISC, Insights, there's the Enneagram, there's the Big Five, you name it, I've tried it. There's the Hogan, which is like a 175 question thing. Anyway, they all boil down, in my opinion, again, to on the vertical axis, are you more task or are you more people oriented? And on the horizontal axis, are you more introverted or extroverted? And this is what I mean by naturally, your default style. By the way, when I'm Claire leading a sales team, which I have at points in my career, I show up more extremely extroverted than I actually naturally am. Um, But my And so then I created these little buckets. And again, I'm not wanting to generalize here. But if you think of someone who's very task-oriented extroverted, they tend to be very directive. We are going to get this thing done. Here's how we're going to get this thing done. They don't always bring the people along, because they're really trying to get the thing done. Um, And then there's the introverted flip of that, which is more the analyzer. I need to see more data. Like, show me the data so that I can get the task done. Uh, And then there's the collaborator, who are often the unsung heroes, by the way. Especially Operators love the collaborators. They're thinking, okay, I'm going to get in the weeds of this process, figure out how to get the people on board with it, and actually get the task done through the people. Unfortunately, sometimes they can spend too much time working to get the people on board. And if you're in a crisis, you sometimes need to bring in the director to say, hey, hey, we got to get moving. And then the promoter, which is, again, again, a natural sort of sales, they tell the story beautifully. They're wonderful at narrative. They're wonderful at inspiring the group, right? And so these are my buckets. I wouldn't use this as the only answer on figuring out uh, your work style, but I would advocate that think for a minute, introspect, and say, okay, where do I naturally kind of fall? And I mean, I'll talk about myself for a second. I am naturally, one, um, a lot of these assessments will place you as a little dot on their chart. And the closer you are to the center, the more adaptable you are. And the farther out, the more like stuck in, like, I'm really an analyzer. Uh, and I tell a story in my book about a team I had where we were doing this exercise where we took an actual decision that we had to make as a team. And we mapped this, the stages of the decision-making process on the floor. We all started at stage zero. And then we got information. And then we had to, sort of by the end of the exercise, make a decision. And I had two guys on my team where all the rest of us were like on stage five. We had decided, and we were making an action plan. And these two were like, we do not have the data. <laughs> I am sorry. And, but I actually value those two people on my team, because they would not let me rush. I'm more of a pattern match, intuitive, let's go to action person. But where do I fall? I'm not. I'm pretty adaptable. I'm actually in a kind of a weird mix, I've learned from these assessments, of uh, a collaborator and a director who acts like a promoter. Um, And so I really like to bring people along, and I'm highly empathetic, but I like to get shit done. Uh, And people think I'm more extroverted than I am. So they think I'm a promoter, and it's because I've done a lot of roles that have customers involved and sales responsibilities. So I can do it, but I am exhausted by the end of the day because I'm actually a little bit more introverted than I appear, including right now. Um, Okay, so that's a little self-awareness. Map yourself. Think where you are in that. And then think about, well, if I were going to build a team, because in in order to actually build a company, you need to build a team. Who else do I need? And you're going to need something that is not intuitive. You are Well, maybe it is now that you've heard me. You're going to need your opposite. And actually, in the interviewing process, we often gravitate to the people most like us. And so if you haven't started to really think through this and develop a rubric of who's the person who might, actually the best hires I've ever made drove me a little crazy in the interview process. Uh, and it took me a while to figure out, wow, that's you know, counterintuitive. I, I, the people I was like, yeah, we could go out right now and like talk for hours. Those aren't the people who complimented me. Um, so anyway, think about where you stand on that. Let let me come back now to to the operating structures. I'm just going to introduce this. um, I'm going to talk at an abstract level, and then we're going to show some some more gnarly specifics. But this part of my book actually starts with the foundation. So I'm just using a house analogy here, which is what I call a a founding document, a set of foundational things that any organization needs at a certain point. Probably not when you're tiny, and maybe not even until you start to have some product market fit traction, But you are going to need to start to not just infuse your values into the company, like just because you're all hanging out in one room together and you're making decisions together and you're starting to build the culture, but actually start to name them. What are our operating principles or our company values? And by the way, they should not be aspirational. Everyone comes out with these lists where you're like, well, yes, that would be nice. They have to be relevant, believable, enduring, and deliverable. So, when you write your first set of values or operating principles um, and you hand them around your company, people should be nodding and recognize, yeah, this is how we are. Think about a really hard decision you had to make. What principles did you use to make that decision? That's what should be in that document. And you would need to start to, do- I and mean, I'm talking about maybe your 50 people at this point, maybe even 100. You're starting to write that down because you're going to start onboarding and bringing people in who can't be in a room all together. They need more formal structures to learn. The other thing I advocate is your long term goals, which you could call also your strategy. But it's like, why do we exist? There's a a mission we have often, a vision. You know, like Microsoft, I want to put a long time ago a computer on every desk in every home, right? That was a big vision. Um, But you need a vision, you need a mission, but you also sort of need to state, like, how do we know we're winning over the next five years? Um, So, one of Stripe's Long-term goals, if you think about it, doesn't surprise you, but will surprise you when you hear me say it, which is advance the state of the art of developer tools. Right? Stripe is an API fundamentally product company, and we care the most about developers as our core audience. And it doesn't feel like, well, aren't you a payments or a FinTech or, you know, no, we, yeah, we build economic infrastructure for the internet. But fundamentally, it's about developer tools. So think about that type of thing. What's your core long-term goal? Um, and, and those are some of the things you would want to put in these founding documents, things that wouldn't necessarily change that often, um, and that you can start to onboard people into so that you have a shared common set of values. Not just why, not just the vision, the mission, but how we work together. And then the next thing is your operating system, which I'm going to, which is really, I, I talked about Google's OKRs. None of this stuff is rocket science. The hard part is actually putting the things in place that are these repeatable ways of operating, so that everyone, like if you think about the chaotic environment of a young company, you need stability points at which everyone can touch down and say, oh yes, this every quarter we do this thing. Some of those are communication practices. Some of them are things like business review practices. A lot of them are goals. They're dashboards, they're metrics. They're the fact that you have an all hands meeting on X cadence and, you don't, and, you, and it's sort of sacred, right? Like these are very like operational tactical things, but the power of them is that they exist and that you repeat them and then you make them better. To the point that Robbie made. You're gonna make them better over time, but people, you know, otherwise are gonna create their own. And you're trying to create a unified vision for what you're operating toward, right? What are the metrics that matter? And the cadence is what I just described. When do these things happen? And again, I will actually be the first to tell you there's no secret formula of these are the right ones and this is the right cadence. It's more about you as the leader saying which makes the most sense for how I want to lead and then I'm going to honor it, just like you honor your one on ones with your direct reports. So let me get into a gory level of detail. I am not going to read this slide, but this is a combination of all of these things that I would advocate you put in place, um, which are some of the foundational things like mission and long term goals, a way to plan, a way to establish what teams do and their metrics, and all the metrics that matter, a sense of ownership, so how do you build accountabilities mechanisms in, and then how do you communicate progress and goals and vision and priorities, and then under what cadence. And if any of you who've been in a company environment, even a school environment, you know, like the week kind of feels like this, the month kind of feels like this, the quarter feels like that. That comes from having an operating system. Okay, So that's the system. Um, so I think that, that what I would say to you, I'm actually going to skip ahead to um, this slide, which is when you're building these things, um, you've probably heard the expression, you know, do the unscalable thing first. And I agree with that. Do it manually. Do a very custom version of this thing. That might be your first hire. Uh, it might be the first time you do a plan for next year. Like, we're actually going to set goals for a whole year, which is like, very unusual if you're young. You should wait to do that until you've really been setting goals for at least the next few months. But, but you're doing this custom version of this thing. It could be your first marketing campaign, your first sales process, the first customer you onboard. All of these things are going to be very custom, and you've only ever done it a few times. Then stop yourself and think, hey, wait a minute. Are we going to need to do this a lot? Like, is this thing going to have to happen? Like, are we going to have to hire 100 people to do sales ever? Yes. Are we going to have to replicate our hiring process potentially thousands of times? Yes. Are we going to have to onboard new customers millions of times? You hope so. Yes. So you got to be thinking, I'm at a low frequency custom place. How am I going to get to a high frequency scaled place? And the answer is you're going to build some operating systems. And yes, processes, but not defensive processes, not things that feel like bureaucracy, things that create structure. Think about it as a t- if you say, I gave you all a bunch of sporting equipment, all different kinds of equipment. And we all went out to the quad here, and there was a big green space, and I said, play. Some of you might actually try to play and hurt each other, um, and, because there's no rules. Like, where's the boundaries? How do you score? What is a foul? <laughs> you know? and, and, and so all I'm advocating is creating a set of constraints that honor, by the way, your business model, your product, your strategy, and then living within those constraints. And then the, ones that really, the things that have to be repeatable and really good over and over again have to come to that scaled high frequency place, which means, by the way, investing in systems, tools, training and development, yes. But what is real scale? You know what it is? It's not individual heroics. It is that you can repeatably win, and you can repeatably win with different teams. Like that's when I know I've done my job, is like I could walk out of this room and they would just keep going without me because they can do it because they have the system, right? That is really what I'm advocating for. Um, I think that the other thing that I would say in advocating for thinking about complexity and, and systems is, people have probably seen this as not a, a proprietary image to me, but I think younger companies often don't think about the, the sort of collaboration complexity as the number of people increase and the number of interfaces then increase. And absent, again, think of going out to the quad with all your sporting equipment and not knowing how to play. If you don't create some structures for within which those interface, what are our priorities for this month? What are the top three things we need to get done? What is our metric of success? What do we want our P&L to look like at the next end of next year? Whatever those are, then those interfaces become much more fraught because everyone is individually deciding what the most important thing is, and advocating for their position. And by the way, they have to advocate in the scenario with six people in 15 different ways to get what they think is the right thing done. You get a lot of interdependency friction. Um, Okay, So, so that to me is sort of the thumbnail of some of the core operating parts of the book and some of my thoughts on why they matter for scale. And then, as I said, and you saw the guts of some of the details, like what's the manager role in setting these things? And by the way, the manager role, because I started as a manager and that's what I I care to speak to, is to understand all of these systems. You'll also have compensation systems, hiring practices. And then, by the way, influence and change them if you think they're actually causing you, your team, your company to head in the wrong direction. Um, But be able to honor them and replicate them down to the lowest node that you can because then you're going to all be running faster. Um, if everybody's like, oh, I'm aligned on this way of operating from top to bottom, just like the OKRs at Google, you're going to see that you get a lot more velocity, especially as you grow, because you're cutting down all that friction. Um, I think that's the main the main goals I wanted to share. I, I think that the, the final thing I would say is that, um, I think we all feel, operators and, uh, versus the founders, that the, the grass is somehow more special on the other side. Um, so I look at the founders I've worked with, and I'm like, how do you come? Like, Believe me, I'd start a company if I had the idea. I was like, I just don't work my brain thinks about how to do the thing, not what the thing is or what the thing should be. And I have so much awe and honor, uh, honor those people and, and revere them in my life. And I have really, most of my career, thought that the stuff that I do, the execution, the operating, is like pretty obvious. Um, and then the founders come to me, and I sort of work, work through a problem they're having, like how do you get from A to B? And they're looking at me like, I could not do that. <laughs> and, and, and they're thinking, how do, how do people think that way? <laughs> and the most beautiful thing about building a team and being part of a really high-functioning team is when you can take that inventory of, wow, doing this thing is like breathing to you. And you're amazing at it. But I can't do this. And that other person shows up. And you really see each other. And you invite each other into the moments when you will have the most impact. And that's where you need that self-awareness to build mutual awareness. And that is when the magic happens of really, truly great companies that have fabric, by the way. This has fascinated me. There are not that many companies that have existed for more than 100 years. And I find them extremely interesting. And a lot of them have a very, very strong value system, but also a way that they ingrained that system into how they operate, how they do everything day to day, that persists beyond the original founding team. Uh, And so I would leave you with that, which is find that magic, those complementary people in your life. Uh, I've worked with a couple of small businesses, happen to be owned by women right now. They're both extremely creative women. And the teams they've built are clearly built to complement them. And that makes me want to be a repeat customer. Uh, and so that, I'll close with that. And I'm happy to take some questions. All right.
1: Hi, Claire. Thank you very much Hi. for coming. Um, I am an MBA one here. Uh, so my question is about like moving from one company to the other. Mm. I have this experience of like building a team, creating a culture, creating some operational tactics, and then moving to a different team. And it's like how much you kind of try to, yeah. like what is working in one company, take it to another one, and how much you have to let like kind of grow and blossom on, on yeah. its own. Yeah,
0: That is a terrific question. Um, and when I started at Stripe, after being at Google for almost 11 years, there was a high degree of suspicion. <laughs> Uh, from the, um, the employees that were there, which was about 160 at the time, that I was going to just try to take Google's practices and just imprint them onto this young company. And that would have been a terrible mistake, um, whatever role I was entering at. I, I really needed to study Stripe, the product, the business model, the founders and the culture they were working to instill. Um, and, and also just what had already started to develop in terms of practices and culture. And be really curious and ask a lot of questions. And, and I will admit, I was so gun-shy that we put in a goals process, and I didn't call it OKRs because I was like, they're going to think I'm trying to bring Google in the room, and I'm not. i really not. But we needed a goals process because everybody didn't know what everyone else was working on. We were past Dunbar's number, right? They were like, well, I don't know if I trust that that team over there is doing the thing that, that we need to get done. And I was like, why don't we all share? Why don't we write our goals and share them? But it is it is about studying, and it is about looking. But I also came in from studying. There are some practices that you don't want to reinvent from one place to another. I mean, that's what a lot of the book is abstracted versions of practices I think you don't want to have to reinvent. And I'll I'll never forget a moment when a fairly early employee, kind of frustrated, came up to me. And he was like, Claire, you are sharing all these ideas. I have already had all these ideas. And I have shared them. And no one is listening to me. And I said, I hear you. I think sometimes a company's not ready, by the way, to hear. And I, even for me, I shared some ideas, and I was like, oh, put that back on the shelf. We are not ready. Uh, but do respect how decisions get made and figure out how do you get in the mix when you see it. But, but really prioritize the order of operations. Say you have 10 ideas of things that could be improved. You cannot come to the table and say, here's 10 ways we need to be better right now. You want to say, what are the ones that really matter right now to advocate for and explain and pilot Piloting is your friend. Try tell everyone. Let's just try this thing for a few weeks and see what feedback we get. Uh, and so those are just some thoughts off the top of my head. But it is proceed carefully, but but don't you know? Don't be intrepid.
2: Terrific. I, I like following the MBA one. I'll be Stanford professor forty since I've been here forty years. <laughs> um, so um,
0: I think I'm, I'm like operator twenty. I don't know. <laughs>
2: So um, so this, I'm going to ask a question literally about scaling people, which is your title. So one of the things that I'm quite fascinated that you've done personally and you've brought people along is, is there some people who, and you're the rare person and go from managing three to 30 to 300 to 3000 to 30,000 people. So if you were going to sort of, well, okay, you're not at Microsoft yet or whatever, (laughs) but, 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 but what are the sort of key two or three skills that you would encourage people to develop along the way? and maybe what they should ignore
0: that's overrated? Hmm. I, I, think, I think that the... Thanks. I think there's a core set of management skills for my direct team that I've gotten better and better at over time because I've had a lot of practice and I was, pro- and I was definitely not as good 25 years ago. Um, but those don't change because you have your direct team and they just happen to be... I mean, you do have to evolve them for a more senior team right you're doing less i actually have a section of the book where i talk about when you're starting to manage managers and then manage leaders it's less about tactically coaching and more about let me help unblock like let me help you figure out the thing you need to do and then help you get unblocked but but i think that the core management skills are are just get better give feedback faster be more direct um and and build the team to be more of a unit. For me, I'm a collaborative leader. I'm like, I need everyone around me to be contributing or else I don't think we're very good. Um, I think that the thing that starts to change when you get to real scale of numbers is you have to be incredibly intentional about your communication practices as a leader. People are not as connected to you personally. There, there are people who come up to me, even on the street, especially when I'm in California, and say, I was on your team Uh, at Google when my team was like, say, 2,000 people. And I don't know all of them. And I say, oh, thank you so much for coming up to me. And they say, you really, like, I learned so much from you. And I think, wow, I'm honored. And also, like, how did I do that? Because I wasn't with them. They were you know, a few five layers down in the organization. A lot of these were folks right out of college or business school. And I think it was because I was out speaking and interacting, but using a lot of different formats. I even would record, this was, by the way, before TikTok. Now I'm aging myself. But I would record videos and send them to my global team, because they were all in different time zones. We could never gather at the same time. And I was like, it's weird to write these super long emails. Who wants to read that? Why don't I send like short video messages? And at the time, that was an innovation. <laughs> but, but the point is, I think that I spoke consistently and authentically and with specifics in such a way that people felt we were in conversation, even when we weren't. That's the scale difference.
1: Terrific, next question, we'll go back there.
0: Hey Claire, thanks a lot for coming today. Uh, I am a master's student doing electrical engineering and we have a startup. Um, This summer we're going to start hiring people and this is like the first time we're going to be hiring people, which is Interesting and we notice that there are two types of persona if we have to like classify engineers one are um, The hardcore engineering people who just want to like given a problem They just want to dig deep into that and the other one is more creative They want to like understand the problem and build for that and do things. Yes, so Two questions. First one, for an early-stage startup, who would you recommend we should hire more, or is there no handbook in that? And the second one is, how do you build a culture that is like adaptable for both of these yeah. kind of people? Well, you need both, but my answer, I mean, I'll, all my answers are gonna be about context. So depending on what you have to get done in the near term, like the next year, and congratulations, It may be something you need someone who's deeply into the problem space and actually building something quite novel and will focus and focus and focus and solve that hard problem. But you also will eventually need that more creative generalist builder. And I think the question is just where are you in your product development, honestly? But yes, both. And just the order of that depends on where you're at with the product itself, I would argue. How do you build, I mean, this goes back, I love sports analogies because they're so apt, which is most teams have a collection of individuals that have actually quite different skill sets, but some fundamental things in common, right? I mean, just think about any team you've ever been on. And what those things are in common, the coach, the leader can establish, which is like, this is, um, you know, I have an expectation of this much sharing of the ball, for example. Um, or the way we give credit, the way we give opportunity to score, whatever it is. Your shared norms that I'm talking about, your foundational stuff you put in place, it's what creates the construct within which those two individuals are playing by the same rules on the same team. And then you have opportunities for them each to shine. And there will be, because back to that thing where if they really see each other, I think one, some of the best performing teams do an inventory of what do we have around the table? What are your special capabilities? What are your awesome skills? What kind of problems are you really great at? And they actually can even assign work to one another because you've built that self-awareness. And that's the best team. Like, and, you know, you've got, we're all watching the NBA playoffs, I assume, and you know, there is a person you give the ball to when you need a three-point shot, landed. And everyone on the team knows it. And, that's the beauty of sports, but you can create that in your own company, too. So my name is Carly. I'm a Stanford grad, and I work in the area. Um, so you mentioned under one of the operating principles about the importance of open and transparent communication. So one, I would love for you to just unpack that a little more of how to encourage that. And then even more so, how do you feel about kind of the culture in tech? Is it becoming more difficult to do that, maybe with sensitivity and mm-hmm. Yeah, around that. Um, yeah. I think that, so transparency actually was, when I first started at Stripe, I thought it was one of the core company values because if you might have read about this, Stripe had this thing where all the emails in the company were copied to everyone. So everyone could read everyone else's emails. Um, you can find it on the web and read about it. And, and it was not actually though because transparency was the value. The value was Let's optimize global decision making over local optima, right? So, like, the more information we share, the more context people have. Then, and also, it was also a mutual learning thing, which is on newer employees. And it was a little scary. I'm going to be honest with you, but would be sending information to customers, to prospects, and engineers would like be reading the email and bomb in directly to like the employee and say, hey, you are a little bit wrong about how the product works. Um, And it didn't always play out beautifully, but it was actually in the interest of let's get all our knowledge as fast as we can transparently on the table, right? And so I'm not a transparency for transparency's sake, but what I think you're describing is like a sort of how do you make sure you have a culture of an open, honest dialogue? And what's really interesting to me about the other part of your question is like, well, everyone's sensitive and we're all going to get canceled if we say the wrong thing. Actually, the most inclusive environments, the environments in which I think every people of very different backgrounds thrive are the ones in which you can have the conversation every, as long as everyone's participating, right? So your leadership and management practice is, how do I get everyone in this room, one, are the right people in the room to make this decision or to hear this information? And two, how do I get them all included and engaged? And if someone's not saying something, it is a problem. Uh, and I think that the actual problem is too often people aren't comfortable saying the thing. Uh, and the best teams are the ones that actually can put the hard stuff out there and have a, a, a rational, sometimes those are, you know, difficult conversations where you're agreeing to disagree or someone has a worldview that you don't agree with. Um, but i you know, if you think about everyone in this room, which team would you rather be a part of? The one where there's energy and ideas flowing in the room, even if they're tough, uh, or the one where people don't talk because they're not all comfortable. I think we know the answer to that. And so, your job is to: how do I set that environment?
1: How do you do that? Just because. I <laughs> I that. How do you ensure that um, people stay connected and don't cancel in the wake of people expressing the thing that they right. are feeling that they're scared to? S-
0: so, I—I I mean, th- there's like so. several different layers to that, and. The, the number So there's a company level layer, which is how do you onboard and set norms and culture and foundations on the way in and set expectations? For example, again, I just refer to my own, like Stripe, as you can imagine, has millions of businesses using our product. Not every business on Stripe is a business that someone who works at Stripe might believe in or might even actively really not like that business. We are, we are going to tell you in the interview process and on your way in, you will find some of our customers that you will love, and you will find some that you really don't love. And we support all of them. And if you have a problem with that, like, you know, put it, like, let's talk about it now. Because we want to set the expectation that users first, which is our primary most important operating principle, is in fact real. You will have to put a user first that you might not actually agree with. Right, so one is setting expectations and talking about it and anticipating, we're gonna have hard conversations. We're gonna have moments where something's in the press and people in the company are like, why do we do business with that? Right? Like you gotta be ready for that and you gotta set the tone. And you've got to also have dialogue. Like we had we have what was what is still a weekly meeting where the founders take questions and people are allowed to like put that stuff out there, but let's talk about it internally. That's our other expectation. Not externally, right? And then there's the team version, which the book has a lot about, which is how do you really get people checked into conversations? Again, set expectations about engagement, and then say, I'm going to give you all, uh, I'm going to go around and have everyone share their idea. Or everyone, I want you to share the, the question that you're not asking, right? Like there's really easy tactics as a manager to get the stuff on the table. But if you don't employ them, you, they will not come naturally to your team.
1: Terrific. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks for. Uh, all of those answers, I think uh, all of them were super helpful. Uh, so currently, I'm a master's student in mechanical engineering and uh, also the founder of my own company. And my dream is to become the biggest user of Stripe integrations. Um, Great.
0: <laughs> and is this going to be a technical question?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, it's more so on the operation side of things. So obviously, like as an operator in a business, there's always a lot of pandemonium happening. There's always something that goes wrong. And what is one story or like one time where you had a massive operational challenge and how did you handle it?
0: So many. Um, So I think that really good operational work is, by the way, an ideal I'm about to describe that is not reality, but part of it has to be reality, which is, you know, the expression see around the corner is real which is like, are we gonna be facing this challenge two years from now that is not hitting us today? And if the answer is yes, I'm 90% or even 60% sure we are gonna be facing this challenge. The really great operator starts building for that because the problem with the crisis is you're already behind, right? And it's gonna happen, that's reality. But the best things I've done as an operator is, anticipate whether that's hiring the right team for two years from now or buying a software package that we needed internally and implementing it and people being like, why do we have to use this thing? And you're like, because trust me, when we're a thousand people, it's our only source of data, right? Like you really want to, you, and you have to have conviction, like we are going to need this thing and I need time to get it implemented. So then what happens when, hey, you have a reliability issue? Maybe there's a security issue. Maybe, I mean, I will tell you, anytime our support team fell down on the job, I heard about it from the founders before. <laughs> Somehow they knew about it before the support team knew about it. I don't know. And I'm getting like tweets sent to me and emails sent to me, and I'm like, we failed, we failed. You know. And the key is, again, that it's a little bit of psychological strength resilience, which is like, okay, compartmentalize because actually support operations are a great example. You have to build a system that scales with a bunch of individuals who need knowledge and solving one individual bad support interaction actually doesn't solve the problem, but it will feel like a five alarm fire in your head. And you have to be like, I hear the fire. I hear the fire. I'm still committed to the system that will prevent the fire two years from now. You know, and so I think it's really about, and that's where the important urgent kind of matrix that's very famous, right? which is, what are the things that are incredibly important to do but don't feel urgent? And I think as an operator, making sure you're carving out time, not just for the urgent reactive things. Um, obviously, if it's urgent and important, you got to get it done. But the important, not urgent things, because uh, that is what builds for the future. Uh, but it's not easy, and a lot of it is psychological resilience and just really being ruthless about your time. I, I can only like have people screaming about a fire drill for so long in the day. Uh, I'm really more interested in what are we doing to solve it, and what are we doing to solve it two years from now.
1: I'm a fourth year um, in psychology and also a MS&E um, co-term master's. I just uh, based on what you just said, I, I love was wondering
0: different things are represented in this room. Sorry, <laughs> it's
1: beautiful. Um, I was wondering. Uh, when you have, like, the vision or, like, the two years from now um, thing that you're trying yes, to, that to you're implement early, yeah. Yeah. and you have people that aren't on board and that are distrustful um, of mm-hmm. you or that vision, like, mm-hmm. how do you go about um, trying to change that kind of mindset or behavior? It's a good question. It's a question for 20 seconds. Yeah, well,
0: that is but definitely, yeah. like, part of the founder sidebar that I mentioned in the You chapter is... Um, I made a mistake a few times early at Stripe where I'd say, hey, we're going to need like a CMS, a content management system, or an LMS. And Patrick and John were like, what? And I was sort of describing a Cadillac thing that we would eventually need when I should have been describing maybe like the Toyota Camry or the bicycle. And this is where the pilot thing we talked about at the very beginning is your friend, which is you say, I see this thing. Let me describe the pattern and ideally bring data to the table. Let me show you some examples of the problem. And then let me do a projection for you. If we had this many of this type of 10 customer issue or this onboarding issue, um, then t- max, you know, say we now have a million customers. What does that look like? And then here is this tool. And then they're looking at you like, you know, you say, well, what I would like to do is a pilot. I'd like to test this and take a control group. And sort. you just need data as your friend. But don't let them say no. Walk away, it's like a negotiating thing. If the, the, walk away with at least one action that is momentum forward, which is usually a test and a way to gather data. Another great tactic is let me call 10 other companies. Let me see what they do with this thing. And, and, and let's talk to our network. Let's get involved. Let's learn. And usually smart, rational people, if you're not working with that's a different problem, will, will be interested in what others have done, and especially others that are bigger. But don't give up, um, and, and I, we had a. I'll end. Yeah? Claire. you I'm do have to wrap right. it yeah, up. We're, we're wrapping, wrapping up. Time,
1: we're at time. I apologize, but that'll be a teaser. Get the book. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot more. Get the book. Get the book. So don't um, give up, Claire. Thank you so much. That was all gold. All right. Um, no, thank you all. These are the all. tactics that we don't talk enough about, um, and and thank you all for your attention for tuning in. Uh, you can always join us on eCorner.stanford.edu or our YouTube channel. Next week, we'll have the CEO of Grammarly, uh, Rahul Roy Chattery, who will come with us, who will join us as well. So please join us next week, too. So thank you. All
0: right. Great. Thank you all. My pleasure.
1: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series
0: is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.